Um, last night during the Q&A, one of the questions was, you know, how do you, you know, questions about like structure, questions about like how do you do it practically? How do you, how do you engage, seek the Lord practically? Um, and what are some tools that are helpful? And I found that, that having more, a more structured plan time in my pursuit of God um, is helpful. And it might not be as helpful for you. Like some of you are more like the romantic, spontaneous type. You just kind of want, want it to happen, kind of flow naturally. And I get that. Um, but even in relationships where we value spontaneity, having planned times together are also important. You know, for me, is, I, I just remember I'm, I'm married 21 years now to Rachel. And I remember when we first started dating in college. I mean, we didn't need a lot of planning. We just, we were just like, it was just like the energy was flowing. You know, we just get together and drink coffee for hours and, and talk about all these things. We were, we were just getting to know each other and there was so much to talk about and so much to learn. So it just happened. But here we are 21 years later, more mature in our love, more mature in our relationship. I mean, we love each other more now than, than we did then. But at the same time, things tend to be less spontaneous and need to be more planned. Like if, if, if being together is going to happen, if, if one-on-one intimacy is going to happen in conversation and day, we need to plan these times and we're going to do it at this day and at this time and the kids are going to be doing this and we're going to go out and do that. And so planning for time together, having more structure to time together, doesn't make it less special, doesn't make it less intimate. And actually we, we plan for the things we value. You know, I'll tell you what, our three kids, you know, they're 19, 18, and 15. They're, they're grateful for the, the planned vacations that we have. You know, we have great times together as a family spontaneously on the weekends, but they love it when we take time to plan. We're going to go on this trip. It wasn't too long ago that we did a 7,000-mile round road trip in our Jeep to the Grand Canyon from Philadelphia and then up to Yellowstone and then through the Badlands and Mount Rushmore and back to Philly. And, and you just can't just jump in your car and do that trip. You have to plan it, um, especially where you're going to sleep at night because, you know, it took us three weeks to do this round trip. It was amazing, right? But so it took a lot of planning and structure. But once we were riding in the plan, once we were riding in the structure, it, it was just so enjoyable. And so I think it's very similar in our relationship with the Lord. Um, I wish every day you just woke up and you say, okay, I'm just going to be with God. And it just kind of happens naturally. Um, but I think for more often than not, what's helpful in our pursuit of intimacy with God is to actually have a plan, to have a structure. And I've found there's some tools that actually help me have a more structured engagement with God. Because sometimes we read our Bible and we're, we're just reading words on a page and it doesn't even really feel like we're engaging with God. And so I found that a couple tools help me engage with God in my, in my time, my devotional time with him. And I just want to recommend them to you before we get into the content this morning. The first one, you're probably familiar with sort of the Valley of Vision. The Valley of Vision is a collection of Puritan prayers. And so, you know, think about it this way. When we read the Psalms, we sing the Psalms, we read the Psalms, we're, we're actually doing what we're kind of doing here a little bit ago is that we're using other people's words to engage with God. And that's helpful, you know, people who have who've taken the time to, to go deep with God and, and meditate on the deep things of God and, and write songs that we can use and articulate a melodic prayer, and we find that helpful. Um, I also find written prayers very, very helpful to do the very same thing. So the Valley of Vision is a collection of Puritan prayers that I've been using for years, and sometimes 
when my soul need is kind of stuck and, and needs to get going, these borrowed words that I use to engage with God are so helpful. I'm um, so helpful. Second to Scripture, they don't replace Scripture, um, but very, very helpful. And um, I actually have my bookmark here and, and a prayer that I use to really just help my soul engage with the realities of the resurrection this last Lord's Day for Easter Sunday. And so, yeah, this is a very, very tried and true friend of mine and our family. Um, so the Valley of Vision, I recommend that. And then I'm a little bit more of a church history nerd, and I love liturgy. I know that sounds weird. Doug likes liturgy too, by the way. Um, but this, we actually just sung my favorite hymn, Be Thou My Vision. Um, this is called Be Thou My Vision. It's a 30-day liturgy for personal devotions and engagement with God. And I think the reason why I love this, this volume is because it actually helps you relate to God personally as you're going through the, the motions, healthily, going through the motions of, of your devotions. And so just like Sundays are structured with a call to worship and a confession of sin and a, a, a plea for grace and an assurance of God's pardon and a receiving of God's word, this helps you kind of do this in your, in your personal devotions. Um, and so it's 30 days. Um, I'll give an example here I have the bookmark in day 18 and it starts with a call to worship and it, it's it's encouraging you to use these scriptures to engage with God through a call to worship and then there's a sec there's a quote here from a, a Puritan on ador adoring God and then there's another section on the reading of God's word and receiving his law and then confessing sin and then assurance of pardon through the gospel and it's this I, I love this stuff and it might not be your thing. I'm just kind of throwing stuff out there that might be helpful for you. So if you need help for structure, if you need help with structure, if you need help with direction, I think this can really serve you in your pursuit of intimacy with God. So it's called Be Thou My Vision, a Liturgy for Daily Worship. You can find both of these resources on Amazon. That's really, really easy. If you want to support more of a small business, I always recommend um, Westminster Theological Seminary's bookstore. Either one of those... <clears throat> Either one of those places, you can get those and get them to you pretty quickly. You can order them now. They'll be there for you this week if you, if you want to take a shot at that. And if you don't, if you don't have the cash for it, Josh said he'll pay for it. Just kidding. Uh, <laughs> so I mentioned, this I mentioned last night that I kind of had two sermons and a study for you. This morning's going to be more of a study might ask you to engage a little bit. Feel free to ask questions in the middle of this. I'm not going to kind of like start up and rip, you know, like in a sermon. Um, this is kind of more of, I want to kind of go in a guided study, what we would call in theological language a biblical theology, a biblical theology of intimacy with God. And I think it's important to kind of understand the Bible's framework for intimacy with God. Uh, the Bible tells a story. It's, it's 66 volumes, um, but it tells a story. And biblical theology is all about taking the parts of the story and, and, and organizing them in a way where it makes sense. And in biblical theology, we typically use four, four chapters to categorize the biblical storyline, creation, fall, redemption, restoration. And I think as you look at the Bible's story arc of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, you can see a, a, a steady thread of of how God's heart for you, God's heart for humanity, through that story arc of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, is his passion for intimacy with his people. 
And so I want to take some time to kind of sh to show you that story arc, that thread that, that kind of goes through those four major categories of creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, and how um, that will help you in your pursuit of intimacy with God. Because sometimes I think we just kind of get stuck, and we need something to help us get unstuck. Back in the summer of 1987, I was 11 years old. It was the summer that U2's Joshua Tree album came out. One of my favorite albums ever. Um, it's also the summer that Harry and the Hendersons hit the theater. Have you ever seen Harry and the Hendersons? I'm kind of a Bigfoot fan. I believe Bigfoot really exists. In fact, when I did that road trip with our family out to Yellowstone, we actually went on a guided tour to find Bigfoot. No joke. Um, are you laughing at me? Um, um, but it was also the summer that in, on our block in Philly that the water department was going to replace all the water pipes all down our street. And so, as is the case with most city work, it's, it's again, like, I wake up, it's more of a process than an event. And so this, this project kind of, like, took the whole summer. And so at the beginning of the summer, they, they ripped up this big trench that went, like, three city blocks from our block down to, to Erie Avenue. And so they, they ripped out the piping, and then, like, it seemed like it was, like, for months, you just had these, this big ditch that was covered with these metal slats. And, you know, the slats where the cars were going, right? So I was 11. My brother Ryan was 8. My buddy Mikey was 9. And we said, you know what? Let's, let's see if we can, like, crawl from one end of the ditch to the other, like, commando style. I mean, we were kind of adventurous kids and a little dumb. Um, and so we did. We got to the one end of the ditch, got underneath. I mean, just barely enough room to have head space. And we crawled, like, a third of a mile all the way down through this while cars were riding over top of us. It was, it was, it was, it was awesome. Uh -huh. But when we got out on the other end, we, we, we came up to the surface on Erie Avenue, and it kind of came out of this ditch into this big crater, and it was filled with this, this soupy mud. And my brother Ryan had a dare. I don't know if you guys ever did the dare thing when you were kids. I dare you to. And so, so my brother... Ryan dared me to do a headfirst dive into the mud pit. I said, no, 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 we got to tweak this dare. I'll do a cannonball. And so I ran. I mean, I, I backed up and I got myself a good running distance and I ran and I, boom, cannonball into the mud. And then all of a sudden, like, when I hit the mud, I went, like, chest deep into the mud. We're all laughing. Ha, 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 ha. This is awesome. Until I try to get out. I mean, I could not. Budge. My brother Ryan's grabbing one arm, my brother, my, my buddy Mikey's grabbing the other arm, and they're trying to pull me out of this mud. But I am like stuck as stuck. And so it got a little crazy. And but here we're also thinking as an 11, 8, 9 year old, we gotta get unstuck, but we don't want our parents to know that this happened. <laughs> Alright, so it's like we need someone bigger and stronger than us to get us unstuck and and we don't want to alert the wrong people because we kind of want to keep this low profile. Not thinking of the fact that once I came out of the mud pit, it was going to be just unmistakable that something <laughs> happened. And so my brother Ryan and my buddy Mikey run into a corner diner there at the corner of K and Erie called Amici's, which is Greek for friends. Amici's. And uh, these two construction workers came out and said, you idiot. And uh, they grabbed me by my arms and whoosh, pulled me out of the mud pit. And in the this is how I got caught is that when they pulled me out of the mud pit, one of my shoes came off and is forever buried at the intersection of K and Erie. <laughs> so 
I walked three blocks home with one shoe covered chest to toe in mud. There, there's nothing more... I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where you felt very claustrophobic, that's very uncomfortable, but being stuck is so uncomfortable. Um, especially when, you, when, when you're trapped and you, and you don't feel like you can get out. And maybe that's how you feel in your relationship with God. Maybe it's how you feel in relationship to your, your devotional life, for lack of a better way of saying it, or your, your intimacy with God, or your communion with God, or your quiet time. Whatever you use to describe those moments where you seek to get one-on-one with God and experience fellowship with the one who made you and saved you. And, and maybe a fruitful and, and faithful devotional life is something that you've desired, it's something that you've pursued, but right now you're just, you feel stuck. Doesn't feel like your prayers go through the ceiling. Doesn't feel like the words of God's word of the Bible jump off the page at you. And you just kind of feel stuck. If that's how you feel, you're not alone. And the good news is, uh, God longs for you to get unstuck. And if you can't get yourself out, which you probably can't, the good news is God wants to bring you out of the mud and bring you to a place where you can once again experience the beauty of intimacy with God. And one of the ways I believe that God will get us unstuck in regards to our devotional lives is to, is to give us proper motivation for getting unstuck. And one of the most powerful motivating factors I believe we have in Scripture is the story arc of God's redemption. That At the end of the day, I think that some of the stuff we're going to look at today will, will help motivate you to get unstuck in, in relationship to your pursuit of intimacy with God. Because what we're going to see from Scripture this morning is that this is what we're made for. This is what you've been saved for. And this is what you will enjoy forever in the new heavens and new earth. And if it's what you've been made for, and if it's what you've been saved for, and it's what you will enjoy forevermore, then why not want it now? Right? And so I think as we look at the story arc of God's plan of redemption and creation, fall, redemption, and restoration, I believe it will motivate you to want to experience more intimacy with God. Uh, trying to cultivate a meaningful devotional life is a humbling experience, isn't it? Um, the Scottish pastor Robert Murray McShane once said, you wish to humble a person? Ask them about their prayer life. The same could be said about one's devotional life as a whole. You want to humble someone? Ask them about their intimacy with God. That's why oftentimes in small groups, when, when, when the small group leader says, so Someone share something they've learned recently from God's word. Cricket, cricket, cricket. Because <laughs> we don't feel like that part of our lives are going very well, whether it be in quality or quantity. I mean, how many times have you, you tried to start reading the Bible through the year and got tripped up at Leviticus again? <laughs> Can I get a witness? <laughs> I mean, how many times have you started to try to keep a journal and then you go back to writing your journal and you realize that the last date you entered anything in that journal was like a year ago. Right? Or you're rifling through a book and a piece of paper falls out and it was that prayer list you tried to start keeping years ago. Right? It's humbling. When we talk about our devotional life, it can be humbling, but it can also be very condemning. Like one of the questions last night, like, 
if we feel like our experience of intimacy with God is something that we have to do rather than we get to do, it can be very condemning. But reality is this is the greatest privilege of the human being to engage in relationship with God. And what God has done to make this relationship possible should move our hearts to such gratitude and to such joy that we should be motivated to go after it as much as we possibly can. And so let's talk a little bit about the motivation. Why should we want to cultivate a regular rhythm of pursuing intimacy with God? Have you ever considered that the giving, forfeiting, and restoring of intimacy with God really are, really forms the the main chapter headings of God's marvelous story of redemption? How God created Adam and Eve to to enter into the, the intimacy of the triune Godhead. For Adam and Eve to experience with God what God has been experiencing in the Godhead for all eternity. As the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit have experienced unending intimacy with one another, God created Adam and Eve in the image of God so that they could experience that intimacy with God. And then how ridiculous it was for Adam and Eve to forfeit that privilege by choosing sin over the Creator. And then God in His mercy, not, not, not rejecting the relationship, but pursuing a restoration of the relationship by giving a promise that one day one would come and remove the obstacle that, would, that got between God and intimacy with humanity. And then how what we're waiting for at this very moment on the other side of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ is for him to come back and to make all things new so that where he is, we can be also forever. I mean, these are the main chapter headings of the story of Scripture. The giving, forfeiting, and restoring of intimacy with the triune God are the main chapter headings of God's magnificent story of redemption. So what should motivate us to pursue daily intimacy with God? What should motivate us to to cultivate a meaningful daily relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit? It's simply this. We were created for this. And even though we forfeited it because of sin, we've been redeemed for this. And one day, we will enjoy it in the new heavens and new earth forever. Us, together with God, forever. So since you're made for this, and since you're saved for this, and since you will experience this forever, by God's grace, let's be motivated to make it a priority to experience it every single day. So, so let me just take a moment to, to kind of show this from, from the Bible, the, over, the overarching story line of the Bible fits into what I've just described. And before I do that, let me just ask for the Holy Spirit to come and help us. Father, we pray in Jesus' name that you send the Holy Spirit to illumine the Word of God to us. I pray that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things out of the Word. I pray that our hearts would be amazed that even though we've turned our backs on you you've not turned your back on us and since the fall of humanity you relentlessly pursue broken people to be restored into fellowship with you because you love us and because you're for us and because you never intended for us to live without you 
Thank you, God, that your heart is to be with us and for us to be with you on this earth and in the new heavens and new earth forever. And so I pray for my brothers and sisters this morning that by the power of your Holy Spirit, you would create within our hearts um, a deeper longing, a a stronger motivation to, to come and find you where you reveal yourself and to enjoy the intimacy with you that you have so clearly um, provided for us and invite us to experience day by day. And so come help us now, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So if you're taking notes, this isn't an easy note-taking sermon or study, but the, the first heading would be, we were created for intimacy with the triune God. So Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 28, Then God said, Let us make man in our image, after our likeness. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Did you notice how the triune God collaborates together within the intimate community of the Trinity to make Adam and Eve in the image of God. Let us, says the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let us make man in our image. So so among the many spectacular things that can be said about being made in the image of God, namely our purpose to reflect God's image as those who were created in his image, we've been given this great privilege to engage in relationship with the triune God as those who have been made in the image of the triune God. One of the great privileges of of, of being human is to have built built into our being the capacity to commune, to communicate, to engage in relationship with God. And so did you notice there that the first thing that God does after he creates Adam and Eve is he speaks to them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply. Uh, conversation, communication is the hallmark of intimacy in relationship. And so here's God creating Adam and Eve. And he, he engages in mutual communication with man and woman. So, so being made in the image of God among the many things it means, and we could do a whole study on anthropology and what it means to be human and what it means to thrive and flourish as human, what it means to be both men and women equal and different. There's lots that can be said about all of this. And in fact, there are really thick books and theologies that are written about all of this. But, but here, is the, here is the most magnificent, I believe the most magnificent reality about being made in the image of God is that you can engage with God. You can engage and experience a two-way interactive relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. You have been created in God's image to, to engage with the God in whose image you've been made. So being made in the image of God is a gift that allows us to experience intimacy with God. So God's creative purpose for intimacy with his people, it's exemplified all throughout 
the old covenant. Patriarch by patriarch, covenanter by covenanter, you see God engaging in this, in, these, in this relationship with those whom he's made in his image. And let me just kind of take you on a little tour of those scriptures. Uh, for example, Noah experiences intimacy with God. And if you're taking notes, just write down the name and put the scripture next to it and, and, and go look at it later and, and ex be amazed. Noah experiences intimacy with God. And I love the way it's described in Genesis 6 verse 9. Noah walked with God. Noah walked with God. In fact, as I was preparing for, for this study this morning, I was reminded of how much I love to go on walks with my wife. Um, I love to go on walks with people. Like started when I was a kid, like my grandpa would take me on walks all the time through the neighborhood when I was a kid. And what do you do when you go on a walk? You talk. You observe. You respond to what's going on around you. You, you experience intimacy. And, and here, we're being told in the Scripture that Noah walked with God. Have your mind blown a little bit by that. Imagine that. Going for a walk with God. Maybe, maybe it would help you because Jesus is the incarnate Son of God. Maybe what will help you kind of see this is just imagine being one of the disciples walking city by city, town by town, village by village with Jesus Christ in the flesh. And so there's mystery here. We don't know exactly how this was experienced. We don't know what, what it was like tangibly for Noah to walk with God. But here's what we know. There was an experience of intimate relationship. They walked together. Abraham experiences intimacy with God. Beginning in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord said to Abram, and again, seems like a minor detail, but God initiates a conversation with Abram. And this kind of points to the fact that intimacy with God is initiated by God. Abram wasn't looking for God. Abram was an idol worshiper. Abram was doing his own thing, going his own way, on his own. And then God shows up and initiates a relationship with him and begins to communicate with him. Do you remember what it was like for you when God began to initiate a relationship with you? What did that look like? It looked like you hearing the good news of Jesus Christ and you sensing the Holy Spirit's conviction in your heart and recognizing that you needed to be in relationship with God and that there was something separating you from that relationship and it was your sin and Jesus lived, died, and rose from the dead to remove that obstacle so that you could be in relationship with God. How did that all start? Well, you didn't, you didn't initiate that. God did. And so intimacy with God here, we see in Abraham's experience, was, was initiated by God. Isaac experienced intimacy with God. Here's the first time the word prayer is used in, in the book of Genesis. Genesis 25, 21. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer. Here we find this word, this special word that's described as sacred conversation with God. So this privilege of, of intimacy with God is, is so so special, so unique, so, so different than even our human relationships with one another, that a, a special word is used to describe the conversation that exists between a human being and the God of the universe. And so prayer, 
is the way we describe those relations, describe that communication. You know, sometimes you chat with someone or you, or you, or you use different slang to describe the kind of conversation that you've had with someone. Or we were just yakking on the phone for a little bit or we were texting or whatever. We use different words to describe our communication with one another. But here we have a word that describes sacred communion, sacred conversation with God. It's prayer. So Isaac experienced this intimacy with God. And notice even in that little description of this intimacy, this is a pretty unique relationship where we not only have a special word that's used to describe intimacy with God, it's, it, there's a unique exchange that takes place. Isaac realizes he's, he's desperate. He, he needs something that he doesn't have the natural resource to produce for himself. His wife is barren. And so he prays to God, meaning that God is willing to hear our requests in this relationship, although it's, it's, it's beautiful and it's, it's relational. It's also, it's also very, very necessary because we are weak and we are needy and we can come to him in conversation, ask for things that we don't have. And he's inclined to give them by his grace to us. So Noah, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob experiences intimacy with God. Genesis 28, verse 15. This is the Lord again speaking to Jacob. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And I will bring you back to this land for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised to you. So here's God saying, I'm with you. So this, 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 this intimacy with God was, uh, was, was, was backed up by a promise. I'm going to be with you. I'm never going to leave you. I am all in on this relationship. This is, this is God's end of the deal. God's end of the covenant. He will never break his covenant. He will never walk away from this relationship. God is so for intimacy with his people that he says no matter what happens. And think about who he's talking to. He's talking to Jacob, the liar, the deceiver, um, the one who just had a really difficult time being who God had covenanted with him to be. Jacob is not an example of a covenant keeper. Jacob is an example of a covenant breaker. Yet God in his mercy and grace keeps covenant with Jacob. He says, I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to keep you. And when you walk away from me, I'm going to pull you back. Joseph experiences intimacy with God. Genesis 39 verse 2. The Lord was with Joseph. And he became a successful man. And he was in the house of his Egyptian master. And his master saw that the Lord was with him. And that the Lord caused all that he did to succeed in his hands. So here's another nuance of our intimacy with God. Intimacy with God, although it can be purposeful, even though it can be, it can be uh, secluded and, 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 and set aside from the ordinary stuff of life. Here, Joseph is experiencing the presence of God at work. The Lord was with Joseph and his boss could see it. And so here is, here is Joseph doing his work, and he's being successful at work. And that work that he did wasn't, wasn't separated from his relationship with God. In fact, his relationship with God helped him thrive at work. So all of this is being developed in the story of the Bible. You know, we talk with God. God talks with us. He's committed to us. He won't leave us, even though we often try to walk away from him. Um, we, we have this special privilege to, to depend upon him for things that we don't have naturally in and of ourselves. And, and it's not like we just go to these little spots where we can get, go with God. God goes with us wherever we go, even to work. David experiences intimacy with God. 1 Samuel 13, 14. 
David was a man who was after the heart of God. That's a way of saying that David just wanted to be as close to God as he possibly could be. And so many of his psalms are written about his desire to be close to God, to experience intimacy with God. And just so you know, just, I mean, you guys are from Lancaster, and let me speak to the men for a minute. You might, this whole idea of talking about intimacy with God just doesn't seem very manly. It just doesn't, it sounds kind of like romantic and maybe a little feminine. And Can we use a different word to describe it? Okay, David was all about intimacy with God. And, and David, he kind of chopped the head off of giants. He's the warrior king. The sweet psalmist of Israel was also like a modern-day MMA fighter. You don't mess with David. He's a, he's, a, he's a manly man, so he's both courageous and compassionate. He's both tough and he's tender. And so this intimacy with God thing isn't just, it's, it's not softness. It, it's what it means to be human. It doesn't, it doesn't appeal to, to, to femininity more than masculinity. This, to, to love, to be with God, to engage with God, to experience intimacy with God. It's a human thing. We were made for this, men and women. So patriarch by patriarch, covenanter by covenanter, it's clear that we were made for intimate communion with God. And I mentioned this last night in the Q&A that God's heart for his people to enjoy intimacy with him and his heart to enjoy intimacy with his people can be captured in a phrase that you find all throughout the Old Covenant and then repeated again in the book of Revelation. And the first place you see is Leviticus of all places. Leviticus 26 verse 12. And I will walk among you and will be your God and you shall be my people. God just loves to be with us. And he wants us to be with him. I mean, think about one of the reasons why, you know, you guys have gone on this retreat. There's a, there's a sense in which you've kind of gotten away to be together because you like to be together. In fact, if you didn't like to be in this group, you wouldn't come away for a couple of days to be with the people in this room. You kind of need to have a healthy toleration of the people in the room to be with them for two days, right? Right? And so God wants to be with us. And one of the ways I think we see this most beautifully, that God meant what he said, was, you might, might not have ever thought about in this terms, but, you know, God's people go on a 40-year camping trip. And so they're camping through the wilderness on their way to the promised land for 40 years. But, and guess who goes camping with them? God does. And so every night, have you ever thought about the way that Israel's encampment was set up? So the 12 tribes... Three tribes would set up their tents facing north. Three tribes would set up their tents facing south. Three tribes would set up their tents east. And three tents, three tribes set up their tents west. And guess whose tent was in the middle? God's. The tabernacle. That was God's tent. The biggest tent. Because God's big, right? Uh, but here's God. He's with them on this wilderness journey. I mean, he's with them through the ups and the downs. He's not just there with them at those climactic, glorious moments of the parting of the Red Sea. No, he's not just there on the day of deliverance. He's there with them all throughout the wilderness journey. He's with them. He wants to be with them. He's not leaving, leaving, leaving them. By day, they can see the cloud. And by night, they can see the fiery pillar. He's there. He's not leaving. He's serious. He wants to be with them. And then they build the temple. And then in the temple, the glory of God comes and fills the temple. And his presence is there hovering over the temple. 
And then you, have, you come to the end of the Old Testament period and there's these 400 years of silence. Like, Does God still want to be with us? And then Jesus comes. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Interesting word in the, in the um, Greek, New Testament Greek. The word dwelt is the Greek word skenao, which means to pitch a tent. So that word was used to, 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 to bring our attention back to the fact that just like God was with his people and longed to be intimately acquainted with his people and relate with his people all throughout the Old Covenant period, here's Jesus saying, I've not changed. I'm still here. I still want to be with you. You're still my people. I'm still your God. I'm really going to redeem you. This is real. I will walk among you and I will be your God and you shall be my people. See, my friends, you were made for this. You've been saved for this. You've been made to to, to walk with God, to talk with God, to hear from God, to engage with God. So as we're seeking to be motivated to pursue intimacy with God, here, here is the first point. You're made for this. You were made for intimacy with God. But we also are very aware that, you know, God does not hide the, the bad parts of the story, the difficult parts of the story. And so we see in the first two chapters of Genesis um, that the story starts off so well. We were made to walk with God in the garden. But then Adam and Eve did something dumb that we would have done if we were there too. They forfeited intimacy with God for a piece of forbidden fruit. Now that piece of forbidden fruit better have tasted like a Pop-Tart, okay? I mean, because it had to be really good. And that's the way sin is. Sin is super enticing and super good, but the, but the result is bitterness and guilt and shame. And it always leads to something you never were expecting, even all on the surface it seems so good and alluring. And so that's the second chapter heading. We forfeited intimacy with the triune God for sin. It just sounds stupid, doesn't it? So Adam and Eve turned from God's presence to turn after sin. I mean, this would be like an Eagles fan becoming a Cowboys fan. That'd be, what, a, what a dumb exchange. No, seriously. Genesis 3.6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes. And the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. And so all, all relationships have rules. And even if you don't use the word rules, that sounds too formal. All relationships have parameters. And so God makes Adam and Eve and says, okay, we're going to be in this relationship. And I've created this world. And just look all around you. Look as far as you can see. It's all for you to enjoy. Enjoy it cultivate it but there's one thing here's the rule there's one thing if you respect me as your creator and sustainer you're going to listen to my word there's one thing you cannot do one thing you cannot have and so then rather than looking at the the gazillions of things that were at their disposal they look at the one thing that they can't have and they take it and so what what happens immediately there's a relational implication of this disobedience right what do they do God shows up like he would normally do to walk with them in the cool of the day. And what do Adam and Eve do? They hide. They cover themselves up with fig leaves. They go hide in the bushes. Oh no, it's God. 
It used to be, yeah, God's here. Now it's like, oh no, God. Can't be, can't be seen by him. Can't be around. Isn't this what sin and shame does? Isn't this what guilt does? I mean, just think about it on a human level. When we know we've let someone down, this is how it is for me sometimes on church on Sunday, where it's like, oh, I didn't answer that text message. I hope I don't see someone so. Right? You can feel that way, don't you, right? You feel it. I've let someone down. I failed someone. The last thing I want to be, the last thing I want to do, the last thing I want to experience with someone that I've let down and failed is to be seen by them. So we try to avoid the people that we've, we've failed. That's, that's shame. Shame is nasty. And so shame ostracizes us. And so this is what's happened with Adam and Eve. They're forfeiting this beautiful, intimate relationship with God, this life-giving relationship with God, because they chose to break the rules of the relationship. And so this has become, this becomes, again, we don't have time to go into all the detail of this, but this becomes the repeated theme of God's people over and over again. Not just God's people individually, but God's people as a nation. Right? Just use the book of Judges as an example. Right, so here's God. He's their, he's their redeemer, their deliverer. Um, they give their hearts to idolatry. They, they, they pursue sin over God. God sends an evil nation or an evil people to, remind, to discipline them, to remind them that they've turned their backs on him. And then he raises up the deliverer. And the cycle just keeps going over and over and over again. Right? They come back, they experience the intimacy with God again, and then they fail again, and then God disciplines again, and they come back. I mean, this is the cycle of redemptive history. That God's people turn from God, forfeit the privilege of intimacy with God for sin and idolatry. And just one scripture to kind of note down there in your notes that kind of captures what was happening over and over and over again is Jeremiah 2, verses 11 through 13. Has a nation changed its gods even though there are no gods? But my people have changed their glory for that which does not profit. Be appalled, O heavens, at this. Be shocked. Be utterly desolate, declares the Lord. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out cisterns for themselves, broken cisterns that can hold no water. And, and God just provides a crude illustration of what it's like to turn from him and turn to sin. He says, I'm a fountain, a refreshing fountain of water. But instead of coming and drinking from me, this refreshing fountain of clean water, you've gone and you're, you're drinking from the sewage ditch. And that's what it's like every time we choose sin over God. And Paul, Paul summarizes this in Romans chapter 1, verses 22 through 23. Claiming to be wise, they become fools and exchange the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. And so this is the story of humanity. This is the story of my life, story of your life. As we take God's good gifts that we're meant to enjoy as expressions of God's heart for us, and we turn those gifts into lowercase g gods, and they can never do for us what we hope and expect them to do for us. And so we take God's good created things, like relationships and money and possessions and just 
every nuanced category under those big categories, and we, and we expect them to do for us what they can't do for us, and we expect them to be for us what they can't be for us. And in the end, what we do is we, we turn those things into lowercase g gods, and we're guilty of idolatry. And so the warning for, for turning from God to idols is that those who worship them become like them. And idols are dead. And, and that's what happens. Uh, multiple little deaths occur when we choose idols over the living God. And that death is separation. And that chasm ever deepens between us and God and the intimacy we were created to enjoy. And so in the garden, when Adam and Eve chose sin over their sustainer, they experienced a kind of death. The day you eat that fruit, you shall surely die. And that wasn't a physical death at that moment. They didn't drop dead at the moment. They experienced a real death in their relationship with God. A separation. A chasm. A forfeiture of the intimacy they were created to enjoy. It's sad. But it doesn't stop there, right? right? That's not the last chapter in the story arc of, of human history. So there's creation, there's the fall, there's the forfeiture of intimacy with God, but then there's this amazing promise that God is going to make a way, according to his mercy, for that intimacy to be restored. For those who chose idols over the living God to, to have a way for their sins to be forgiven, for the chasm to be, to be bridged so that there can be a, this, this glorious reconciliation between God and man. And so God even hints at it in Genesis chapter 3. God pursues, I mean, you got to see just God's mercy in all of this. So, so God pursues sinners to make a way for them to be reconciled to him. Even though they walked away, he walks toward them to bring them back. And so he goes after Adam and Eve and says, where are you? He knows where they are. Where are you? When you hear those words, where are you, in Genesis 3, hear God initiating reconciliation. You've walked away from me, but I'm not leaving you. Where are you? And then he, he provides a, a, a promise for them, right? That even though there are going to be consequences to this forfeiture of intimacy with God, even though there are going to be consequences to sin, what we call the curse, God's going to provide a way for the, for the consequences of the curse to be overcome by the seed of the woman who will crush the head of the serpent. And then God provides for the reconciliation and, and, and gives a foretaste, a foreshadowing rather, of what that will look like. And as he takes an animal and sacrifices it and then covers Adam and Eve with the clothes of an animal made from animal skin and covers their shame and covers their guilt at the cost of another. Have you ever thought about that? They had their, their, their flim-flam way of trying to cover their, sh their shame with the fig leaves, but God says, no, you need, you need a permanent covering, a, more, a sufficient covering. And so God clothes them with animal skins. Well, in order to clothe them with animal skins, what had to happen? That animal had to be sacrificed, and blood needed to be shed, and, and the covering of Adam and Eve would come at the cost of another's life. 
And this is all foreshadowing of how God would ultimately provide for our salvation. The ultimate covering of our guilt and shame, the ultimate forgiveness of our sin, would come through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ on our behalf. And so this is the third chapter heading. We regain intimacy with the triune God by the reconciling death of Jesus Christ. And I'm about pressed for time here, but let me just give you some of these categories and how the gospel... How certain places in the New Testament, the gospel is communicated in terms of how Jesus has made the way for intimacy with God to be restored. Um, so Jesus was sent to reveal God's heart for intimacy with God. In John 1, verse 14, I, I already mentioned this. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we've seen his glory. Glory is the only son from the Father, full of grace and truth. So here Jesus comes on the scene in his incarnation, and he's pitching his tent with humanity. He's showing humanity, I am here to be with you. I've not turned my back on you. So God still wants to be with us, even though we have forfeited that privilege through our sin. In 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 18, Jesus' death on the cross is, 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 is described in terms of how it provides the way for us to have intimacy restored with God. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. That's reconciliation language. So Jesus died on the cross in our place as our substitute so that we who were separated from God on account of our sins can be brought back to God, brought back in relationship with God, brought back into intimacy with God, back to a place where we could talk with him and he could talk with us and we can relate to him and he can relate to us. And that, that intimacy that, that Noah and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David all experienced, we can experience once again, even though we forfeited it because of our sin. In, Paul, in Paul's writings, he talks about how Jesus, the, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ provides the way for us to come back into, and here's a New Testament word, to bring us into fellowship with God, koinonia. 1 Corinthians 1.9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. And so through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ, that was an expression, Paul says, of God's faithfulness. His commitment, his unrelenting commitment to enjoy fellowship with his people, to enjoy relationship with his people, to, to experience intimacy with his people. And even Jesus Christ in, in the Gospels, when he described the essence of eternal life, what did he say in John 17 verse 3? And this is life eternal, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent, that they might know you. And, and that is another really interesting word in the original language. It's the, the Greek word epigenosko, which means to enjoy intimacy. In fact, it's a word that's typically used to experience, to, to describe the intimacy that's experienced between a husband and a wife. Face-to-face, -face, close fellowship. And 
And so Jesus Christ, through his life, death, and resurrection, has provided a way for this intimacy with God, this relationship with God to be restored and to be experienced. So much so that uh, James, the half-brother of our Lord Jesus Christ, is so overwhelmed with the reality of how Christ provided for our reconciliation. He says something like this in, John 4, in James 4, verse 7, draw near to God and he'll draw near to you. In other words, you can be as close to God as you want to be. Take a step towards him, we'll take a step towards you. And so because of Jesus, my brothers and sisters, we have never-ending access to intimacy with God. Hebrews 4.16 Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may find mercy and grace to help in time of need. So whenever we need it, whenever we want it, we can draw near to God. We can come before the very throne of God. And because our sin is forgiven, because our shame is covered, because our guilt is removed, the, the, the presence of God is not a place that we need to fear. It's a place that we can come boldly and act like we belong there. Because we do through Jesus Christ. All right, let me, let me wind this down. How many of you have ever read or watched The Wizard of Oz? I love The Wizard of Oz. Although I was really freaked out by those flying monkeys when I was a kid. Oh, yo. I mean, that was like, dude, I would like had nightmares about that stuff, but, you know, my parents were good parents. They, they made me muscle through it. <laughs> and so do you remember the scene? Um, you know, the whole, the whole time these, these, these four friends, these four newfound friends are, are on their way to the Emerald City because they all have a need that they believe only the great Oz can meet, right? And, and so help me out. The scarecrow needs a brain. brain. The tin man needs a... The Dorothy needs to get back home, and the lion needs some uh, courage, right? You know. So here they are. They, they all have a great need, and they're they convinced that there's only one place in the world they can go to have that need met. It's in the Emerald City. It's in the great throne room of the Great Oz, and so they're off to see the wizard. And so they finally get to the Emerald City. And when they get there, here's the question. Were they confident that the Great Oz would see them? No, they weren't. They weren't. And either were the people of the Emerald City. In fact, they, they, they told them that before they would go in there, they have to get themselves together. They got to do all they can to make themselves presentable to the Great Oz, right? So Dorothy's getting the beauty treatment. The Tin Man's getting his tin all buffed and polished. The, 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 the Scarecrow's getting fresh straw. And the Cowardly Lion was getting the beauty treatment too. That was weird even back then. Okay. <laughs> but here they are. They're, they're trying to get themselves together because they're just hoping maybe, just maybe, if they, can, if they can put their best foot forward, maybe the great Oz will hear them. Maybe the great Oz will provide for them. And then there's this scene where they're all linked arm in arm, just very fearfully with trepidation, walking down that long corridor into the room where Oz is. I mean, were they confident? No. They were worried. Does he really want us in there? Do we really belong in there? Will he listen to us? Will he help us? <clears throat> Hebrews 4 says that we can with confidence come before the throne of grace and ask for mercy and grace to help in time of need because through Jesus Christ, we belong there. Through Jesus Christ, he wants us in there. 
through the good news of the gospel, we belong in the very presence of God. We can experience intimacy with God. And like Isaac, in those times of need, say, help, I can't, but you can. Or like Mary at the feet of Jesus, just wants to be at his feet and be in his presence. So because of the good news of Jesus, you belong where God is. Because of the good news of Jesus, you can be where God is. God has communicated his heart for intimacy with us. And through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, we can experience intimacy now. And here's the last chapter heading. We will experience intimacy with God forever. Right now, Jesus isn't on this earth because he's gone to prepare a place for us. That where he is, we might be also. John 14, verse 1. And we're told by the Apostle Paul what it's going to be like when he returns. 1 Thessalonians 4, 16-17 For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command, with the voice of the archangel, with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so will we always be with the Lord. We will be with him forever. Just like he planned. We are created for this. And even though we forfeited this because of our sin, we have regained this through the good news of Jesus Christ. And one day when Jesus returns and makes all things new, we will enjoy this forever and ever. And here's the point. If we're going to have it forever, let's have it now. If we're made for this, let's go after this. If we forfeited this, yet we still have the opportunity to experience this because of the gospel. Let's go after it. And if we're going to enjoy it in God's presence in the new heavens and new earth with God and one another forever, then let's enjoy it now so that heaven doesn't catch us by surprise. When Jesus returns, he will recreate the perfect space for our uninterrupted intimacy with one another and with God. Revelation 21, Then I saw a new heavens and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man, and he will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Doesn't that sound like Leviticus? This has been his plan all along, all throughout the story arc of the biblical narrative. God's heart is to be with us and for us to be with him. The giving, forfeiting, and restoring of intimacy with the triune God are the main chapter headings of God's magnificent story of redemption. And by the grace of God, we are a part of this story. By the grace of God, you have this privilege. And if you're not a follower of Jesus yet, I don't want to assume anything here. I don't know all of you personally. If you've yet to recognize what you forfeited because of your sin, would you today... See, Jesus is the one who reconciles you to God by forgiving your sin and covering your shame and removing your guilt so that you can be where you belong in relationship with God. Knowing him and being known by him now and forever. Only Jesus can make that possible. Only Jesus makes that possible. And Jesus in his mercy extends that to every single one of us right here, right now, to be with him. The perfect God, now and forever.